of you know who Ralph Kiner is? Anybody ever heard that name? Anybody in here? Okay, nobody. All right. Yes, yes. So one, we got one in here. All right. Yeah. Uh, but many, many who know him now, they know him as the, the longtime broadcaster for the New York Mets. He actually started at the uh, team's in, inception in 1962. I believe we have a picture. Yeah, this is him today. And he may look familiar to you there. And, and he is still calling games for the New York Mets today. But before broadcasting, Kiner was a major league baseball player in the 1940s and 50s. And though injuries forced him to retire after only 10 seasons, he was a force to be reckoned with in 1946 through 1954. In these years... This future Hall of Famer was, was considered one of the best hitters in the major leagues. In his rookie year, Kiner hit 23 home runs for the Pittsburgh Pirates, but the following year, he led the major leagues with 51 home runs. And in 1949, he topped his 1947 total with 54 home runs, and he led the major leagues for seven straight years. In, uh, in most home runs per season. He was an incredible baseball player. And any team in the major leagues would have loved to have had Kiner in their lineup. Well, all that praise that was given to Kiner that he received for his play in baseball eventually went to his head like it does for most athletes. And uh, he shared a while back in an interview that after finishing the 1952 season with 37 home runs, he thought he would use that as leverage for a raise. So he went into Pittsburgh Pirate manager Branch Rickey's office and basically said, I think it's time for me to be paid more money. Well, to Kiner's surprise, Rickey refused. Kiner said, but I led the major leagues in home runs. But Ricky then asked, but where do we finish as a team? To which Kiner responded, last place. Ricky then paused for a moment and then simply said, well, I think we can finish in last place without you. Ooh, that hurts a little bit, doesn't it? Short time after that, Kiner was traded to the Chicago Cubs. What a response, right? But, but let's be honest. Can't you get where Ricky is coming from here, the manager? Though Kiner had a good season hitting the ball, he did not lead his team to very many victories, did he? Though his personal accomplishments looked good on paper, he could not pull his team out of last place. And, and this manager had to give him a harsh dose of reality by letting him know he was not nearly as valuable to the team as he thought he was. Believers, at times, we need this perspective, don't we? We need this harsh dose of reality sent our way, don't we? Many of us have a tendency to take ourselves way too seriously. We tend to think we are more valuable than what we really are. We have a tendency to think that we are indispensable. And at times, it's good for someone to come alongside us and pull us off of our high horse back down to earth, isn't it? When our passage for this morning 
Paul is going to do just that. If you have your Bibles, turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 4. This morning we are going to be discussing verses 6 through 13. Paul's message to this messy church this morning is guard against pride. Guard against pride. In this passage, Paul is speaking to a group of believers who have an unrealistically high view of themselves. And let me warn you, his rebukes in this passage are pretty harsh. He deals out some pretty sharp words here in the verses to follow. Now, what's Paul's reason for doing this? I mean, has he just had it with the Corinthians? Are we witnessing a man at his breaking point? Is that what's going on here? No? Then what's the reason for these harsh words that Paul gives out here? Believe it or not, his words are written here to benefit his audience. You know, sometimes instead of a pat on the back or a nudge on the shoulder, what we really need is a good slap in the face, don't we? We do. At times, a harsh rebuke is needed to get our attention, and that's what Paul gives the Christians at Corinth here. As we've talked about already, they were some prideful people. They were boasters. They took pride in the wisdom that they had and in the leaders they followed. So here Paul comes along and confronts this prideful people in hopes of humbling them. What we also find in this passage is that Paul gives us some great advice on how to deal with pride. So we're going to look at the, these, uh, this passage this morning on pride. First, Paul tells us to overcome pride, number one, you have to look to the godly for lessons in humility. Look to the godly for lessons in humility. Look at verse 6. Look at what Paul says here. He says, I have applied all things to myself and Apollos for your benefit, brothers, that you may learn by us not to go beyond what is written, that none of you may be puffed up in favor of one against another. Now, considering the context, some might think it's strange here that Paul in verse 6 is holding himself up and Apollos up as men to look to when it comes to examples of what it means to be humble. I mean, let's be honest. For the last three chapters, Paul has been telling the believers at Corinth that they're not to put godly leaders up on a pedestal. They're, they're not to... to put them up and elevate them in an ungodly way because it was causing all sorts of problems in the church. Well, with this in mind, you would think that Paul, for the rest of this letter, would avoid being put in the spotlight altogether, but he doesn't here, does he? He puts himself and Apollos forward as good examples to follow when it comes to humility. I love that about Paul. He doesn't just throw the baby out with the bathwater, does he? Like we've said already, though it's, though it's wrong to, to elevate godly leaders in an ungodly way, though it's wrong when these individuals are idolized and, and worshipped and when affiliation with them disrupts Christian fellowship, on the other hand, it is biblical and helpful to look to good godly leaders for examples, as examples, for how to live for God. In Hebrews 13, 7, we are told, Remember your leaders, 
Those who spoke to you the word of God, consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. And that is what Paul is calling for the Christians at Corinth to do here. He's basically saying, though you're not to exalt me and Apollos and others and place us up on a pedestal, I do want you to look to us and and follow our example for what it means to be a humble servant. I want you to look to us. I want you to listen to us. And I want you to follow our example. Paul wanted the, the, the Corinthians to understand what it truly meant to be humble. So he put forth himself and Apollos as examples they can look to. And the reason why he does this is because their puffed up, prideful, and arrogant attitude was not consistent with Paul and Apollos and other leaders they associated with and with the Lord they claimed to follow. Believers, we need to hear this as well, don't we? We need to understand this. We do. My guess is that if we went around the room this morning and polled this audience, there would be a large number of people here who confess Christ and claim to be a follower of Him. But let me ask you this. Ask yourself this this morning. Is my walk consistent with my confession? Is your Christian walk consistent with your Christian confession? Are you a humble person like the Lord Jesus who came not to be served but to serve? Or does your pride mirror that of the Pharisees? When examining your life this morning, can you honestly say that your attitudes and your actions are consistent with the Lord you claim to follow? If not, I have some great news for you this morning. You should have a book with you or a book nearby you. That's written by God himself. And in this book, God has filled the pages with instructions for how to live a life that is honoring for him. And not only does God tell us how in this book, but he shows us how through the examples of his people like Paul and others. He gives us example after example in this book of humble servants like Paul who we can look to and and compare our lives with and imitate. So to guard against pride, we need to look to God's people in God's word for lessons in humility. Also to guard against pride, number two, you need to remember that God deserves praise for all you are and all you have. God deserves praise for all you are and all you have. Look at verse 7. Paul says this, For who sees anything different in you? What do you have that you did not receive? If then you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? In this verse, and in the verse to follow, verse 8, Paul starts in with these harsh words, these sharp rebukes. In verse 7, he asks three rhetorical questions that were meant to knock the prideful Corinthians back down a notch. First, he says, who sees anything different in you? Now, the, the translation here is a bit awkward, okay? That verb in this phrase literally means to regard someone as superior. So Paul is literally saying here, who made you superior? Who made you better than anyone else? Or when I was growing up, we used to say, who died and made you what? King. 
Who died and made you king? Right, that's what Paul's saying here. He's asking this rhetorical question to put each one of these divided individuals back on equal ground. He's making the point here, just because you are schooled in the, in the ways of worldly wisdom and you're a follower of so-and-so doesn't mean that you're more significant than the less educated follower of so-and-so. Paul's making the point here, none of you are any better than anyone else. Second question Paul asks is this, what do you have that you did not receive? That's a great question, isn't it? Think about it. What do you have that you didn't get from someone else? For example, how many of you in here had a say in when and where you were born? Anybody? Show of hands? No, I didn't think so. Now, some will respond by saying, yeah, but once I got here, man, once I got here, I, I had a lot to say in where I am now. I'm a, I'm a self-made man. I'm a self-made woman. I've made my own success. Well, let me ask you this. Do you think a guy like Mark Zuckerberg, founder of Facebook, would have made the billions of dollars he's made today if he were born in the 17th century? Something to think about, isn't it? Do you think Steve Jobs, former CEO of Apple, would have made the money he made if he were born in the middle of an aboriginal tribe in New Guinea? Who decided you'd be here? Who put you here? Who preserved your life to adulthood? And who made sure your abilities continued until you got to college and beyond and became something? Well, individuals did, right? like your parents and your family and your friends and your teachers. But the scriptures are also clear that all you are and all you have has been given to you by God. James says in James 1.17, Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights. And Paul reiterates James's point here to make the point to the Corinthians that who they are, what they know and what they have accomplished in life has ultimately been brought about by God. Therefore, there is no room for pride. There's no room for boasting. This is especially true when it comes to our spiritual condition, isn't it? Remember what Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 26? He says, Consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world. Even the things that are not to bring about the things that are so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. Paul here writes to humble this prideful body of believers. And he basically says here, hey, I knew you guys. Remember, I was with you in the beginning. I was with you when you first trusted in Christ. I remember you before you trusted in Christ, and you were nothing special. You were nothing to write home about. And he says this here to remind them that God chose them and saved them, not because of who they are, not because of what they had done, it was unmerited and undeserved favor that was shown the Corinthians so that none of them could come back and look at their spiritual life and say, hey, I did that. 
By my own power I am where I am spiritually. No, Paul reminds them here that they have been saved by grace alone, through faith in Christ alone. It's not of works, it's what? It's a gift from God. Believers, every one of us in here are where we are physically and more important spiritually because of God. Paul understood this, which is why he goes on to say in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 10, by the grace of God, I am who I am. Believers, by the grace of God, we are who we are. Therefore, there is no room to boast. Everything we have, everything that we are has been given to us by God. Therefore, if you're going to boast, you've got to boast in Him. He deserves all the glory and all the honor and all the praise for all the advancements that you've made in your life. It's good for us to be reminded of these things because it makes us humble. And humility makes us spiritually healthy, both individually and corporately as a church. And the Corinthians needed this perspective as well. Because as Paul mentions at the end of verse 7, they were boasting in themselves as if they were solely responsible for the advancements that they had made in their life and in the faith. Which leads Paul to give even some stronger words here in verse 8. Look at what Paul says. He says, already you have all you want. Already you have become rich. Without us you have become kings. And would that you did reign so that we might share the rule with you. Now I picture if Paul was talking, he he didn't, he wrote a letter to him. but if he was with them face to face and saying this, he might mockingly bow his head and hands and say, you guys are kings. If only we can be like you. you. Can you sense the sarcasm in verse 8? Paul's being very sarcastic here. He says, you guys are fool. That word fool is uh, used in reference with food. It means to be satisfied. Paul is saying here, you have all you need. You're, You're satisfied. You have it all. You don't have any wants. You're not lacking in anything. You don't need me. You don't need Apollos. Then he goes on to say, you're rich. Paul is saying here, you guys are self made men and women. Congratulations. You have become what you are by your own power, without anybody's help. You don't need me, you don't need anybody. And you're probably thinking to yourself, that's pretty harsh. That's some harsh sarcasm that Paul's dishing out here. But that's the way the Corinthians felt. That's the way they felt. They thought they deserved honor and praise for their advancements in life and in the faith. And they thought they had all all the things that they needed figured out. Now, here's what's ironic. They felt this way, but their church was in shambles. Though they thought they had all things under control, though they thought they were headed in the right direction, their church was filled with division and sexual immorality and drunkenness and heresy. So Paul says sarcastically, you're full, you're rich, and then he says, you have reigned like kings. In other words, you're already complete spiritually. You're ruling and reigning with Christ. You've done it. And notice he says, you've done it without us. Once again, you don't 
need us. Here we are struggling spiritually, and here you guys are. You've got the Christian life licked. You've got it all figured out. You've left us, your teachers, in the dust. Paul's being real sarcastic here, isn't he? The reason why is because the Corinthians were thick-headed know-it-alls. They were. You know anybody like that? Don't say any names out loud. You can never tell them anything because they already know it all. When they share with you about their spiritual struggles and you try to give them biblical counsel, they always respond with, oh, I already know that, you know? I know what God's Word says about that. I've had to deal with some people like that at times who have come to me and what I wanted to say was, what do you need me for? You know? What do you need me for? You got it all figured out. Now, I didn't say that, but I thought it a few times. The reason why they were meeting with me is because though they claimed to have all the answers, their life was in shambles, which proved that they needed more help than they claimed to, right? And that was the case in Corinth. Though they claimed to, to know it all, their spiritual life and their church was in shambles. So Paul is using sarcasm here to basically make the point, though you think you have arrived spiritually, you're not even close to being where you need to be spiritually. The end of verse 8, Paul breaks from the sarcasm here and he says, I wish that you did reign. In other words, I wish you did have things figured out. I wish we were all where we needed to be spiritually. But that is not the case. Again, harsh words, but there's a reason that Paul takes this tone with them. He wants to wake them up to the reality that their attitudes and their actions are untrue and ungodly and that they are not in line with the attitudes and actions of faithful followers of Christ. The right perspective to have is the perspective that Paul alludes to in verse 7. It's the attitude that says, everything I have has been given to me by God and everything that I am is because of His work in and through me. That's the correct perspective to have. That's the biblical view that leads to humility and spiritual maturity. Church, is this your mentality? Is this your perspective? Do you think to yourself, I'm full? I'm in need of no one or nothing? Or do you look to the Lord on a daily basis and say, I need you every hour of every day? What's your perspective? You boast in yourself for the advancements that you've made in your life and in the faith? Or do you look to the Lord and praise Him and say, I am who I am because of your grace? Do you think you've arrived spiritually? Think you have the Christian life all figured out? Or do you share the attitude of the Apostle Paul who said to the Philippians, I'm not where I need to be spiritually, so I press on. What's your perspective this morning? You want to guard against pride? You want to be truly humble? Give credit where credit is due. Praise God for all that you are, for all that you have, and see your need of Him on a daily basis. That is is the proper perspective to have. That is the kind of attitude that leads to humility and spiritual maturity.
Third and finally, you want to guard against pride. Number three, accept the fact that humility is God's path to greatness. Accept that humility is God's path to greatness. In verses 9 through 13, Paul once again makes contrasts between the prideful Christians at Corinth and the humble and faithful and godly apostles and leaders they claim to follow. In this passage, Paul shows them what a true servant of Christ looks like. And what you're going to see from this passage is it's not, at times, it's not a pleasant picture. It's not. At times, it's not a picture of comfort. It's far from glorious. Look at what Paul says in verse 9. He says, For I think that God has exhibited us apostles as last of all, like men sentenced to death, because we have become a spectacle to the world, to angels and to men. Remember in verse 8, Paul sarcastically calls the Corinthians kings. He says, You guys are kings. And while some in the church lived as though they were kings, Paul says, we apostles are last of all. Men sentenced to death, a spectacle before the world and before angels and before men. Now the Greek word for spectacle there is theatron. That is our English word, that's where we get our English word theater. In the Roman world, When a conquering general returned victorious from war, he would ride in on a decorated chariot that was pulled by white horses. And after he would come in and receive praise from all those in the city, then he would march his army through and show how impressive his power was by showing off his army. And then there would be one more group that would come through, and they were the prisoners who were caught in battle. And they were chained together, and many of them were sentenced to die by being thrown into a local arena to be devoured by lions and other wild beasts. And Paul is giving us this picture here in verse 9. And he says, we have become a spectacle. He says, though you guys desire to be in the first two groups, though you want to be praised and you want to be popular leaders in the church and in your communities... We are the spectacles. We are the little guys, the little group of guys that are, that, are, that are chained together as captives who are being carted off to be killed. That's literally what happened to many of them, wasn't it? Many of the apostles, many of the, the, the faithful were paraded in chains before men and they were put to death out in the open for all to see while the crowd cheered. Once again, Paul is making this contrast for the Corinthians here to show them how out of step they are with the faithful because of the two groups who were being more faithful to the call of God. The humble, selfless apostles or the prideful, self-centered Corinthians. The first group, right? Paul says God has exhibited us, the faithful apostles and leaders he has put us on public display we are the ones used by God and we are the ones he favors and considers truly great Paul goes on to say in verse 10 we are fools for Christ's sake but you are wise in Christ we are weak but you are strong you are held in honor but we in disrepute Paul turns again to sarcasm he says though you are wise and are strong and are honorable he says we are fools and we are weak 
and we are lowly. He's making the point here that to be a faithful follower of Christ, to take a stand for Him, does not bring with it earthly honor and praise that men so desire. doesn't. Believers, this is important for us to realize, isn't it? Christianity done right will not always result in us receiving praise and being considered wise and strong and honorable in this world. Oftentimes, what results is the opposite. In verses 11 through 13, Paul says, To the present hour we hunger and thirst. We are poorly dressed and buffeted and homeless. We labor working with our hands. When reviled, we blessed. When persecuted, we endure. When slandered, we entreat. We have become and are still like the scum of the world, the refuse of all things. What Paul's words here go completely counter to many pastors and church leaders in our world today who, who teach what's called prosperity gospel, right? The idea that, that if you're faithful, God is obligated to bless you in the here and now with health and wealth. Let me ask you this. Was there anyone more faithful than the Apostle Paul and the other apostles? Yet look at his situation in verse 11. He says, we are hungry and thirsty, and poorly dressed, and homeless. Was this because they were lazy? No. Verse 12, he says, We labor working with our hands, which, by the way, was, was dishonorable in Greek culture. That was something they had the slaves do. So Paul is saying here, Though you Corinthians are rich and full and reigning like kings, we have nothing. We are working like slaves. We are nothing more than homeless drifters. It's pretty lowly, isn't it? But notice at the end of verses 12 and 13, though Paul and others like him were viewed as the scum of the earth, they had accepted their lot in life, didn't they? They remained joyful and continued to be faithful because they knew they were right where God wanted them to be and they were busy doing what God had called them to do. That's why Paul says at the end of verse 12, he says, when reviled, we bless. When persecuted, we endure. When slandered, we entreat. Wow, what a perspective. Let me ask you this morning. Are you anywhere in the ballpark of having that perspective? Is that anywhere close to where you are? What is important to you? What do you most value in your life? Your reputation among men? Your status in society? Or your faithfulness to the God who made you, saved you, and called you to live for Him. Let's be honest, oftentimes we're willing to be faithful and serve God as long as it doesn't cost us too much, right? When it comes to our status and our health and our wealth. Many of us are, are looking for ways to serve God that doesn't alter our way of living too terribly and doesn't damage our likability among men. Paul is saying to us here, he's basically saying, I'm sorry. There's no such thing when it comes to following Christ. To be a disciple of Christ isn't always a favorable position. 
It's not a position of a king. It's not a position of nobility. It's the position of a slave. And Paul says, if you want to follow my example, if you want to follow the example of Christ, if you want to achieve spiritual greatness, there's only one path to take, and it's the path of humility. Let me end with this. Though in this text, we have primarily, primarily looked at the examples of, of the apostles and, and other teachers from the first century when it comes to being a humble servant of God, this message would not be complete without looking to our perfect example. The example of the Lord Jesus. And one of my favorite passages in the New Testament, Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 11, Paul calls for believers to look to and follow the example of Christ. If you'll remember when we studied through the book of Philippians, the Christians at Philippi also had issues with pride, didn't they? And these issues that they had with pride were bringing about division within the church. So Paul calls for them to be humble and he puts forth the example of Christ. Listen to what he says here. He tells them this, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. Being born in the likeness of man and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. No one has ever nor will ever exhibit greater humility than this, than what was exhibited by the Lord Jesus. There was a time in history when He, the eternal Son of God, stepped out of eternity and refused to cling to His status as God, but instead He emptied Himself by taking on flesh and becoming a lowly servant. Scripture also tells us that not only did He do that, but He lived the perfect life for us that we could never live. He was perfect inside and out, and He was obedient to the point of death, and not just any death, but a painful death on a shameful cross. And He did all of that so that those who would trust in Him could be made right with God. And Paul tells them this here to make the simple point that if Christ humbled himself to this extent, how much more so should you and me be willing to humble ourselves? It's kind of hard to argue with that, isn't it? This is true of Christ. How much more so should this be true of us? Maybe you're here this morning and you're looking at your life you can honestly say that it looks nothing like that of the apostles and more importantly, nothing like Jesus. Let me ask you a simple question this morning. Is Christ the Lord of your life? Have you come to the point in your life where you have turned away from going at life on your own and have you come to the point where you have given your life completely to Him? Remember what I said just a moment ago that the, the true path to greatness is through humility and the first step in this journey with Christ is humility. It involves seeing yourself the way you truly are as a sinner and, and, and an enemy of God who needs to be forgiven and who needs to be saved. If you are 
not trusting in Christ this morning for your salvation, I pray this morning that you would see that you are a sinner in need of a Savior and that you would humbly turn from your sin and simply trust in the Lord Jesus for your salvation. If you have not, I pray that you would this morning. Would you pray with me?